Father, we pray that on Monday, that that day is gonna be more for each of us than just a holiday. We pray that Monday, as we celebrate and remember and reflect on the life of Dr. King, that Monday isn't just for us another day off, but that it will be a time of deep and honest, courageous reflection, time that we will set aside to enter into a conversation with you, to ask you to show us some things in our own heart that maybe that we don't want to see. That, that we'll walk in the wisdom of the book of James, that your word is like a mirror and a wise man doesn't forget what he sees when he walks away from it. Show us, oh God, show us the things in our heart that need to change, the things in our heart that need to continue to move forward this great nation to a place where we will one day truly be able to say that there is freedom and there is justice for all. In Christ's name, come on and everybody sit together. Amen. Can you give it up for the worship team tonight? So good. Well, I'm going to start with my clothes and then I've got some other things to say and we may or may not get to part two fasting. We shall see. We shall see. Let me read you some quotes here by William Wilberforce. If you don't know who that is, you've got homework for Monday. If you're looking for some things to do on that day that you might have off, then you need to study and learn about this man. And if you can find online somewhere the film that depicts his life entitled Amazing Grace, I'm telling you that you will not be the same after watching it. Listen to what he says. He says, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. Here's another quote. It says, accustom yourself to look first to the dreadful consequence of failure. Then fix your eye on the glorious prize which is before you. And when your strength begins to fail and your spirits are well nigh exhausted, let the animating view rekindle your resolution and call forth in renewed vigor the fainting energies of your soul. William Wilberforce was one of the most influential voices in history for the abolition of slavery in our world. It is one of the great lessons in history that one person can make a profound difference. I think that's part of the lesson that Dr. King gives to us. One person can bring about change that will make history. I think sometimes when we gather here on Saturday nights, I think about, is there someone in this room that God has a call in their life to be a history maker? Not all of us are going to be called to make history, but some are. I wonder, in Kid Life Care, those little children back there that are wrestling for the toy that they want that someone else has, and maybe their life seems insignificant, but is, is God looking down over one of those children in a unique way because they're going to be a history maker? Our hope at this church is that whatever your purpose, whatever your calling, it's going to be fulfilled that you're going to walk in the purpose and the calling that God has spoken over you from the foundations of the earth. 
And whether or not we are called to be a history maker, can we all agree that we're all called to bring about change in our society? Even if the change that you bring about is just through the heart of one person. Even if the change that you're supposed to bring about is through your neighbor next door or that coworker that sits next to you that you wish sat next to somebody else. It could be that God put them next to you because you're going to be the voice that changes the way that they think about other people, especially other people that might look differently than them. Can we agree tonight that all of us suffer terribly from what the Bible calls the human condition? And part of the human condition means that we carry prejudices and biases that we don't even know that we have. We don't even know we have them. People have put them inside of us things that we've been taught and told, examples that we follow, maybe experiences that we've had that have been negative experience with certain people in certain situations, and then all of a sudden those experiences begin to form in us a filter through which we see things through and we ought not. Could I encourage you to enter into a conversation with your Heavenly Father, with the Creator of the universe And for some of you, maybe you've never prayed this prayer, and I trust that some of you are going to pray it for the first time tonight. For some of you, you might need to think about it a little bit more, and you pray it on Sunday, and for others still, it might not come until Monday, but I'm praying over the next couple of days that you will say to God with honesty and integrity, God, if there are any prejudices and biases in my heart that you want to show to me, I want to see them. I'm telling you, if you pray that prayer, he's going to begin to show you some things. He's going to begin to show you some things just through the own revelation of the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. But can I just tell you, one of the ways that he begins to show you things is through other people. And oftentimes, they're people that you would not choose. You and I have a responsibility as we live this life to form in us the character of Christ. Now, you might say, I thought that was the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. But guess what? He's looking for you to partner with him. And there is some change that will not be worked out in you until you yield to it because he does not take possession of us. He influences. And at some point, you got to yield. At some point, you got to cooperate. At some point, you need to participate. And for all of us, there should be a growing desire in our hearts to participate more and more in the eradication of the prejudices and the biases that are in our heart. Because as we change, our family will change. And as our family changes, our neighborhood will change. And as our neighborhood changes, come on, our city will change. And our city and our state and our nation and our world. Change has to find momentum somewhere. Let it be found in each of us. Now, you might be here tonight and you might be saying, Fred, I don't think I have any prejudices and biases. And what I would say to you, you just haven't found them yet because they're in all of us. Every single one of us has a prejudice and a bias. And it might be that you're thinking you don't have them because you're only attaching the idea of prejudice and bias to a singular concept. It might be that you say, well, Fred, I can honestly say when I see people of a different color that, that look differently than me, that I, I, I've never had a negative thought in my life. And that might be true, but can I just say to you, it might be that your bias is attached to socioeconomic classes of people. 
It might be that your bias is attached to people that, that come from a different level of society. And now I'm really going to press you a little bit. It could be, it could be that your prejudice and your bias is because of your political alignment. It could be that your prejudice is because of your political affiliation. You feel that it is the more Christian alignment and you look at someone else who has a different political affiliation and you think, I'm not sure how they can have that affiliation and profess Christianity. Then I would say to you, you've already discovered your prejudice and your bias. It could be that your prejudice and your bias is related to gender. It could be that your prejudice and your bias is related to generations of people. We all have them. I'm just going to tell you, I have them for every category that exists. And I think most of you do too. Can I tell you the reason why most of us don't like deep inside subconsciously of relinquishing these prejudices and biases is because they give us a feeling of superiority. And something in our humanity craves a feeling of being superior to others. It's one of the reasons why in Jesus' teachings, he kept coming back to this same theme that, that if you're going to follow Christ, that you've got to be willing to take up your cross and you've got to be willing to die to yourself. He makes this incredible statement that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. What's he saying? He's saying you've got to fight in battle, that feeling inside of you to be superior because it's going to rob you in life. Even Jesus' disciples found themselves posturing with each other because they all wanted to be in the front of the line. James and John, they even got their mother involved. Come on. <laughs> Lobbying Jesus to give her sons a special place. Oh, because mothers are not immune to the feelings of superiority that come through the advancement of their children. You and I, in our hearts, there is a longing for superiority, and Jesus says that you've got to battle that. And one of the reasons why you've got to battle that, it's for many reasons, but one of them is most certainly until you're willing to dethrone that desire, you will never make honest progress when it comes to the biases and the prejudices in your life. We think about the story of the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Christ. We're going to be teaching on this in, this in this coming year. Jesus actually uses racial epithets to demean her. You're like, what is he doing? He's testing the people around him to see what their response would be. And I think much to the disappointment of Christ no one stepped in in that moment and said, that's not right. No one stepped in that moment and said, that's not how we should think and act towards other people. You and I in our lives are going to have occasion and opportunity to go public and take a stand, a loving and kind way, but a stand nonetheless. Conversations in the break room, carpooling on the way to work, working beside people even at the church that you call home. 
in your family and times of conversation and discussion that there are going to be moments where you observe and recognize a bias and a prejudice. Our responsibility in this life isn't just to work out the biases and the prejudices in us, but trusting the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit so that we are in a setting that could be that God wants to use you to help identify the bias and the prejudices in the heart of another. Our world can look different if we're willing to be different. Our world can look different if we're willing to embrace the kind of change that Christ truly wants to work in us. And even if we don't see all the change that we know that needs to come in our lifetime, can we at least labor and work to pass the baton to the generation that comes after us so they don't have to do the work that we were supposed to do ourselves, so they can pick up with the work that God has called them to, so that we can look at our children and our children's children, our grandchildren, great-grandchildren one day, and that we can say, we have set you up so that you can move this ball further down the field so that one day they can be victory. Father, I pray for the people here that are uncomfortable right now, and I pray you would make them uncomfortable even more. I pray, Father, that you wouldn't lessen the pressure, but you would tighten the belt. That this feeling on the outside that's causing them to feel uncomfortable right now, God, that they would grow to love this thing that you call the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Sensitize their heart. Sensitize their heart. Help their ear on the inside that you have given us to hear your voice. Make it more sensitive to what you want to say. Holy Spirit, we pray that your voice would drown out the deception and the lies and the myths that have plagued us for far too long. We want to be like the Old, prophet, Old Testament prophet prophesied that you're going to take out the heart of stone and you're going to put in a heart of flesh. Let it be in each of us. Come on, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I got something else to talk about. Welcome to the City Life Church. Right? Okay, before I forget, I do have some birthday. Is Indy here? Where's Indy? A little birthday love, a little birthday love. Oh. And I don't know if Dan the Ramos is here, Danielle and Pedro. Dan oh, Danielle is back there. Come on, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Come on, there you go. You're welcome. We were worshiping tonight, and, and I had such a sense that, that, that God was, 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 was speaking to me to, to, to share with us that this idea of Jesus taking our place is only for certain things. Let me tell you what that means. We know that as we study in the Old Testament, that the system of sacrifice that was actually set into motion in Genesis, it did not begin with the Mosaic Law. It began in Genesis. When, when God killed animals to create clothing in Adam and Eve, it was the first instance 
of vicarious death. It was the first instance of someone dying for the sins of another, and it was the, the act of clothing him was a prophetic picture of what was going to come once the Mosaic Law got established, is that you and I are naked in our sinfulness, and that God has to do something on our behalf to clothe us in our unrighteousness. And all of that in the Old Testament, all the system of sacrifices that you read about or you don't read about in your Bible reading plan because you skip over Leviticus, right? Don't skip over those books. Read through them. There's there's stuff in there that God wants you to see. And part of it is that you and I are sinners. And there's nothing we can do on our own for our condition. Some else has to die for us. All of that is prophecy leading up to the moment in time where Jesus dies for the sins of the world. From Genesis all the way to Malachi is saying to the world, one day Jesus is going to die for my sins. It is a death that you and I could not endure. It is a death that that even if we had stepped into it, would not have been effectual. What does that mean? It, It means that it would have not produced forgiveness because that which is sacrificed has to be innocent in order for the forgiveness to come to the guilty. So even if we were to die, it would not produce forgiveness because we're dying in our guilt and shame. But there are some things that the death of Christ does not take our place in. It does not take your place for the worship that you owe God. It does not take your place for the time in Scripture that you yourself were supposed to give in reading. It does not take the place for the resources that you're supposed to invest in your kingdom. Listen to me. It takes the place for where we fall short. But there is an expectation that you are going to now, because of the grace that you've been given, live a better life. We're never going to be as good as we need to be. We're never going to rise to the degree of righteousness that Christ is. But his death on the cross takes the place for us so that we don't have to look for someone else to take the place in other areas. It's a fascinating study that when you look in the Old Testament and you look at the system of sacrifice, it wasn't just a system of sacrifice on behalf of the people for their sin. There was also a priesthood that represented a system because they themselves could not come and worship God the way that God desired because of their unrighteousness. So the Levites worshiped on their behalf. The Levites read God's word and interpreted on their behalf. The Levites practice caring for the poor, and and the list goes on and on and on. The the system of the Mosaic law was because people were incapable of doing so much that one day Christ would make possible for us. You and I, on the other side of the cross, should we say, thank you, Jesus, for dying a death that I could not die? Absolutely. But should you also say, thank you that now I can pick up the mantle that you always intended me to have, that I'm not looking for someone else to worship on my behalf. I'm not looking for someone else to pray 
on my behalf. I'm not looking for someone else to care for the poor on my behalf. I'm not looking for someone else to proclaim the gospel on my behalf. Because of Jesus standing in your place with the cross, it makes it possible so that you don't have to look to him or others to stand in your place for things that God says you stand up for those things yourself. There is worship that is supposed to come from your mouth and your heart. There is time of study that's supposed to come from your effort and your sacrifice. There are resources that are supposed to flow into the world from your hand. There is prayer that is supposed to come from your mouth to the throne of heaven. Being a devoted follower of Christ is not about just resting in the grace that is afforded to us because of who Christ is. It's finding inside of us a desire and a hunger and a passion to ask the question, because of this grace that I have been so freely given, what now must come out of my life that's going to change my world? Father, I pray that for every one of us here that we would not look to the cross to do for us what you look to us to do ourselves. Not that we will ever be able to do it without the working of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Not that we will ever be able to do it apart from the grace that has been afforded to us. Not that we can ever do it outside of the righteousness that we are now clothed with because of the death of Christ. But may it be that we would never use those things as an excuse to live less than we should. That we would labor, that we would bring effort that we would strive and that we would hunger and thirst for the work and the life that you have called and created us all to be. Come on, in Jesus' name, and everybody said together, amen. Fasting, part two. <laughs> Katie, I'm going to skip right down to the slide entitled Purpose. Every week we uh, put a PDF online that gives the outline for all the text that we cover. If you weren't here last week, then I would recommend that you listen to that podcast, you download that PDF off of our website, and it's going to give all the background that's leading into tonight's message. There are nine fasts that the text in Isaiah 58, 6 through gives to us based on a book by Dr. Elmer Towns, Fasting for Spiritual Breakthrough. We, we change some of them, but we want to give this book credit because it is really the source of what so often we teach and believe about fasting here at City Life. I so appreciate Dr. Elmer Towns and his insight into God's Word. So we're going to pick up with some of these fasts tonight. I want to start with this one entitled Purpose. One of the reasons that you and I are supposed to fast is because there is a purpose that you and I have been created for. When you yoke yourself to a purpose that you were not created to pursue, you carry a burden whose weight your life was not designed to withstand. If you don't know your purpose and calling, fast. 
Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, then Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and my burden I give you is light. Now, this is a curious text, because if you've been walking with Christ for any amount of time, that you know his burdens are anything but light. They are weighty. And it's not because Jesus misleads us. This isn't an advertisement to draw you in and then you find out what it's really about. It's because we don't understand the language of his teaching. Here in this, 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 this verse, he uses the word burden, but he, used a really, he uses a really specific word. He uses the same word that he would use for a ship's cargo. It's the Greek word for tion. Acts 27, 10 says, men, he said, this is the Apostle Paul on a ship that's going down. I believe there is trouble ahead. If we go on, shipwreck, loss of cargo for Tion. Loss of cargo and danger to our lives as well. Jesus uses this word when he's talking about his burden for us being light, not because it's not weighty, but because the burden that he gives to you and me, we're designed to carry it. Now, come on, we live in one of the greatest cities in the world because some of the greatest ships in the world are built right here. Can we agree on that? Come on. And if you've ever been down there to the shipyard, you, you, you see these massive ships, and then you stop and think about how much everything weighs that goes on there, and they don't sink. Not because... They don't put things on there that aren't heavy. It's because there are engineers that design those ships for the cargo that they're intended to carry. You and I have a purpose that God has created for us. And that purpose is always going to be weighty. But if you're walking in the purpose that God has for you, your life is designed by him to bear the weight of the burden that he gives to you. It is light because of who God made you to be, not because of the calling that he has spoken upon you. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with fasting? It's because Jesus also uses some interesting language here when he talks about being yoked to him. Now, this is unique language to Jesus' day because it is the way that a rabbi in the first century would describe someone who ascribes to their interpretation of the Mosaic Law. We have denominations back then. They had rabbis and schools of thought. It's the same. All different kinds of interpretations. And when you aligned yourself with a certain rabbi, it was said that you yoked yourself to their teaching. It means that you were coming alongside that particular rabbi and that you were willing to follow in their example. So when Jesus talked about being yoked to him and yoked to his teaching 2,000 years ago, people understood what that meant. He was saying, you might be aligned with someone else in their teaching, but you need to realign with me. Now, we understand that the way that we yoke ourselves to Christ today is through making a vow of devotion to him. That's how we describe it here at the City Life Church. The prayer of salvation, being born again. 
But to truly yoke yourself to Christ is more than initial commitment. Just as it was in Jesus' day, to yoke yourself to a rabbi wasn't supposed to be just an empty promise in a moment, that it became a lifestyle for you in accordance with their teachings. We teach here that there are six foundational commands to Christianity. Follow Jesus, love God, love people, be perfect, go everywhere, and receive power. If those are new for you, you can ask somebody in a blue shirt to give you a little green book. It's free, and it talks all about it. There's a website that we've got dedicated to it called letspraxis.com. You can learn about it. One of the ways that we believe that you and I walk in obedience to those six commands is through the practice of 12 pathways. One of those pathways is fasting. You see, the more you integrate those 12 pathways in your life, the more you yoke yourself to who Christ is because those pathways are the act of obedience to the command that he gives to you and I to follow him. If you want to know what your purpose is in this life and you're having a hard time figuring it out, then what I would say to you is yoke yourself to Christ deeper and more intensely than you already do. That book talks to you about how to do an assessment about those 12 pathways and how they're active in your life and how to begin to strategically move them from red into yellow into green. And what I'm saying to you is that oftentimes those pathways, we tend to do the ones that we're inclined to. We tend to do the ones that, that we enjoy more and we tend to leave out the ones that are harder like fasting. You need all 12 of those pathways active in your life if you're going to get a full and complete picture of the purpose that God has for you. And if you're lacking clarity in your purpose, I guarantee you're lacking in the presence of those pathways, which means you're not yoked to Christ to the depth and degree that you should to begin to discern the path that he wants to lead you down. Insight. I'm gonna go, let, me, let me go back to benevolence, Katie. Benevolence. When we are moved by the needs of others faced with the opportunity to help or in a position to feed someone hungry, care for someone who is lacking, fast. There are going to be times in this life when we face opportunities to get involved in helping other people and their situation is so far beyond our means Fasting is the perfect place to start. I'm not going to read all these texts to you tonight for the sake of time because I want to introduce you to each one of these concepts. But if you're a note taker, you can write down 1 Kings 17, 8 through 16. 1 Kings 17, 8 through 16. It's an incredible story about Elijah coming up upon a situation that was absolutely beyond the help of any person. A land that was stricken by famine and drought but yet here we have a man walking with God, practicing those pathways, someone who had devoted his life to fasting. And because he was so yoked, not with Christ then, right? Because Christ hadn't come yet, but so yoked to walking with God in his life in the way that God had revealed it before Christ came, that he had spiritual insight on how to respond to something that was beyond him in the natural realm. When helping is within our means, we act because of Christian love and generosity. 
But sometimes the need is so great that the need far exceeds our means. And can I just tell you, in those moments, if you feel that God is prompting you to get involved in some way, then you should spend some time fasting, and I'm telling you that God will begin to show you some ways that you can make a difference. Insight is another fast that we find in that text in Isaiah. When we are stupefied, mystified, in desperate need for revelation at the limits of our intellectual capacity, our analytical skills failing, our problem-solving abilities befuddled, perplexed, bemused, confused, and dumbfounded, fast. Fast. Acts 9, 7 through 9 is the incredible story of Saul, who's not yet Paul, but will soon be, on the road to Damascus. Listen, this story teaches us that when your spiritual experience exceeds your understanding, fast. Now here in the story, it says that he did not eat or drink anything for three days. I don't recommend that. Right? He was a unique person. You don't drink anything for three days, we're probably going to be doing your funeral right here in this church. But it doesn't mean that there aren't times where your fast should not be so severe, not to risk your health, but come on, to challenge you in a way that you've never been challenged before because there is insight and understanding that needs to catch up to your experience. This is why I talked last week about there's all different kinds of ways that you can fast, but there is something unique about forcing your body to face hunger. There is something unique about waking up every day with this longing inside of you. I believe it's the greatest urge that you have because it's connected to your survival urge. There's something about you facing that, standing against it, and not giving in that grows something in you spiritually that will benefit you for the rest of your life. And we see in this story that one of the ways that it benefits us is that in that time of fasting, there is revelation that we find for experiences that leave us befuddled. Healing. When your bodies need supernatural intervention, when our diagnosis is bleak, our physical health is threatened, our path forward for well-being is unclear, our vision for vitality is eclipsed fast. Daniel 1, 11 through 15. Daniel 1, 11 through 15. Now, when you study the story of Daniel, when he was in Babylon and they wanted him to eat all this kind of food that he knew because he lived under the restraints of the Mosaic law that he could not eat. And so if you've not read the story, you should read it. It's an incredible story how God supernaturally sustained him during this time. Now, there's all kinds of connections between the fasts of Isaiah and the story of Daniel, but one of them is most certainly that something happens supernaturally to their bodies. This text tells us that they were actually more healthy when they should not have been because they were denying themselves certain levels of nutrition. There are times in our lives where we might face physical ailments. Now, I'm not saying to you that every time you fast, when there's a physical ailment or a diagnosis that you've been given, come on, that, that it's a slot machine. I'm not saying that it's a, a contractual relationship. There's teaching out there in the church today that frustrates me that almost treat, teach, treats the scripture as if God has some contractual obligation to you. He does not have a contractual obligation to you. 
The only contractual obligation that he has is to be true to his own sovereignty. If you and I are facing a diagnosis for something medical and that we're longing for a healing, then fast. Because it could be that fast is what's going to bring about the healing in your life. But listen to me, if it doesn't bring about the healing in your life that you want, because God has a different plan for you to walk in the burden of your, of, of, of your circumstance, can I tell you what you will find is the insight to understand how he's going to use it. You can't lose. You can't lose. Your witness when our witness needs to be more declarative, when our salt and light calling is flavorless and dim, our kingdom influence seems to be waning, our evangelistic voice failing, our desire for reaching, subsiding, fast. Luke 1, 10 through 17, while the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying, and while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him, but the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John, and you will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord, and he must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And then it goes on, and it's telling the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are going to be the fathers of John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of Christ, who's going to be the prophet that breaks 400 years of prophetic silence in a nation of Israel. From Malachi to John the Baptist, there were 400 years of prophetic silence because God likes a dramatic entry. And John the Baptist comes and he breaks that silence. And it's interesting, isn't it, that God instructed his parents about a lifelong fast that he was supposed to give himself to. Now, this is a unique kind of fast here. It was the oath of a Nazarite. I don't have time to go into all of that for the sake of time, but there's plenty of Information out there. If you Google that, if you the oath of the Nazarite, it'll explain it. This this idea of, of 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 no alcoholic beverage was connected to the oath of the Nazarite. It's the same oath that Samson was called to give himself to. It's a lifetime. It's a lifetime calling. But I like this story when it connects to our witness because we know that John the Baptist was the witness of the coming of Christ into the world. And so this text is instructive to us. Not that you and I have to necessarily give ourselves to something like that because that was the cultural practice of their day and their time. This is one of the things that you've heard me say before is a fill-in-the-blank text. The question should be, is God, is there anything that you're asking me to give up that would be so public that it would cause other people to be curious about why I did it. See, all the aspects of the oath of the Nazarite caused them to lay down something that were squarely at the center of their culture. It, it asked them to lay down things, not that were bad, but things that, that, that were part of the unique cultural practices of Jewish life. And, 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 and by, by taking that oath, it, it, it made it public. 
Can I just tell you there are times where God's going to ask you to lay down some things as a fast. It could, be, it could be that he asks you to lay down something for a lifetime. And what I would say to you, don't enter into something like that lightly. But it also means that, that from this teaching, what we see, what we understand, is that if you want your witness to be brighter then the kind of fast that God is going to call you to is to lay down some things that will be a witness unto themselves that would cause other people to say, I wonder why he or she's not doing that today. I wonder why they're not doing this. And in that moment, there is a conversation that God begins to create for you to begin to share your faith in Christ. The last one is protection, a fast for protection. Nine biblical fasts. Are these the only things that we should fast for? Absolutely not. But these nine should be at the center and then we build out from there. When we feel as though our physical or spiritual well-being is at risk, threatened, in jeopardy, in danger, terrorized, diminished, intimidated, fast. Esther 4, 15 through 17, it says, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. And if I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So you think these crazy movies that come out called The Purge is something new, but no, no, they took that from the Bible because it was really going to happen. In the story of, of Esther, the king is tricked into signing an edict that's going to give his nation freedom and permission to set aside today a day to kill Jews with no legal consequence. And what does Esther do? She calls a fast. Because there are times in our lives where we face danger. There are times in our lives where we may be at risk. And what we find from this story is that fasting, there's something about it. Listen, that wars against the forces of darkness that are at work in this world to inundate us with evil. There is something about, I, 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 I can't explain it to you, and I'm going to leave it to smarter people than me to do it. Through these two parts on fasting, we can explain some things. Some of the correlations that exist between the fast and the result is clear, but some of it, it's just a mystery, and we're never going to figure it out until we get to heaven. But what we do know is that if God draws the connection then we have the privilege of stepping into that moment to bring about the result that he wants to see happen. And there is something about fasting that wars against evil in this world. And I saved this one for last because some of us for fasting, some of us, it, it's, we've only ever fasted for something for us. And we've never fasted for the world. We've never fasted for a friend. We've never fasted for a family member. Can I just tell you over these 
21 days that, that I'm on as a fast, and I know all of us are doing different kinds of things, and we're focusing on different things, but I, can I just tell you one of the things that I'm focusing on in this fast, in this fast, is fasting against the forces of darkness that are assigned to the 757. Because we want to gain some ground in 2019. Not just our church, but the church. We want to gain some ground. We want to push back evil. And there's a place on the front lines that you and I are called to stand in. And one of the ways that we stand in it is that we stand in a fast. Stand with me. Father, I pray that as we worship here in this closing moment, that for some people here that that you've made uncomfortable with just the idea of the prejudices and the biases that might be in their life, that now, God, you've given them a practical step to be able to gain some insight, to be able to stand against the evils in this world of racism and bigotry, that you've given them a practical way that they can begin to deal with the hate that's in this world. Change us, transform us, and may it be, oh God, that we would never use the grace of Christ to be lazy, to withdraw and to step back, that we would advance, that we would move forward, and that we would press in. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.